podcast is made possible by Lincoln. Discover how uplifting a drive can be at lincolncanada.com. There's something about the genre of jazz that I find reassuring. It's so enveloping. Jazz is busy. It's lively. It's hectic. It's emotional. But it also has an anchored quality to it. Jazz is comforting. There are so many instruments making bold declarations all at once. And yet the chaos, if you want to call it that, feels organized, shepherded. Maybe this is why, ever since I was a kid, I've reached for Ella Fitzgerald records around the holidays and into the new year, when things feel particularly high pressure. There's a sense of order in all the commotion. Jazz, especially when improvised live, requires a harmonious balance between instinct and expertise. It's a conversation with notes, and each note changes based on the sound or direction of other instruments based on a player's mood, the location, the weather, every little thing. So what I wanted to do for this episode was get a few incredible musicians into the studio and break down the sound of jazz. You just heard a clip of what's to come in this episode. We got drummer and composer Larnell Lewis, bassist Mike Downs, and pianist Jeremy Ledbetter together in the studio to see what really happens when musicians play through unspoken signals and cues. I'm Carly Lewis, your host of The Sound Of, a Globe Content Studio podcast. In today's episode, we'll unpack the language of jazz a genre best known for improvisation, and how players talk to each other without words while playing. When the musicians are in tune with each other, it gives the audience an opportunity to see this synergy and electricity and almost to become excited by this conversation that they might not understand the language of directly, but they're moved by the expression of each person that is in the conversation. Now, before I play you any more of that session, I want to tell you a little bit more about Larnell, who is one of Canada's most revered drummers. He's a member of three-time Grammy award-winning jazz collective Snarky Puppy, a drumming teacher at Humber College's jazz program, Canada's home base for producing many successful jazz musicians, and really, a guy who's had an incredibly impressive solo career of his own. Needless to say, learning how to improvise like you just heard takes time and experience. For Larnell, it all started when he was a kid. So two, I was pots and pans. Three, I was sitting on my dad's lap. He played the pedals and I played everything else on top. I come from a line of musicians and so my dad being a multi-instrumentalist and also the musical director at the church that we went to, that gave me access. 
if he wasn't playing piano, he might play drums or play guitar or play bass. So if he was on drums, he would let me, you know, or at least even after church, he would pull me up while they're all jamming and I'd sit on his lap and play everything else. Over time, he practiced and became skilled enough to start playing by himself in church, where he continued to play until his teens. He learned the ropes of gospel performance and basic drumming. He learned to recognize the emotions of a crowd and to play in response to them. He learned firsthand the power of the drummer in a group. I like to think of the drummer as a sheepdog. Sounds weird, but it's the goal of the sheepdog to follow the direction of the shepherd to get the herd wherever they need to be or to manage specific things. So as a drummer, I'm managing some people say I'm, you know, I manage tempo. I actually believe that we all manage tempo because it would really suck if everyone's speeding up and I'm just trying to slow them down. I don't actually get a chance to express at that point. I become the the DD. People say designated driver, I say designated drummer. Right? So as a sheepdog, you're you're, you know, as a drummer, I'm guiding people around you know, the pen, which is the song. I'm guiding them, you know, left and right, dynamically, changing the volume, encouraging activity, getting softer, maybe bumping up the tempo a little bit because I feel like people are not dancing or it, maybe it's too fast, we gotta pull it back. So there's a lot of control that I do have from the drums and, you know, with the guidance of the musical director or even just within my own awareness and intuition, I'm using my skills and abilities to help shape the song and guide the band, you know, from start to finish. Awareness and intuition are two key considerations for drummers, and all musicians really, when they're in the flow of improvisation. These are skills Larnell found within himself early on. But a love for jazz? That didn't come quite so naturally for him at first. For me, with jazz and the journey that I took to getting into jazz was interesting because, you know, jazz being an art form coming out of blues, you know, all being within New Orleans, but then the offshoot of blues is gospel. And and even in gospel harmony, there is a lot of jazz harmony. So there are elements of jazz that I was familiar with, but what I categorized as jazz was not interesting to me. It was not intriguing. It wasn't something that moved me and felt great. I could even say that I, I didn't really see myself in it. There was no kind of a reflection for me inside of that. And so eventually I started to hear examples of other music that people labeled as jazz. And I was like, oh, I like this. I like the way this feels. I like the expression. I like what you can do with it. I like the complexity. I like the you know, ability to, to showcase different aspects of the drums or you know, I was writing songs writing composition since I was about 15 years old. And so, you know, all of that kind of came together once I got a clearer example of what jazz was. From a musician's standpoint, jazz has enjoyed many decades of flourishing popularity. But with the evolution of modern music and technology, jazz has begun to occupy a different position in the vast landscape of sound. Which is not to say that jazz is dead. Not at all. A lot of your favorite bands have trained jazz musicians in the mix. Think of Kamazi Washington, who played on Kendrick Lamar's third album. And that album was nominated for 11 Grammys, by the way. Or Miles Mosley, 
who's played with Chris Cornell, Kenny Loggins, and Lauren Hill. We have musicians like Colin Stetson and Bad Bad Not Good, accomplished jazz players who are also working to keep the genre feeling fresh. And of course, there's the mighty Snarky Puppy Collective, who we'll chat more about later. Despite the fact that jazz has changed over the years, Larnell still tries to create music that's so utterly entertaining to listen to, you just can't help but move. It kind of sounds like this is a very social and empathetic and very like active genre of music to play. Does that sound That is correct? totally correct. I mean, you know, jazz music for a long time was a music of the people. It was a social music. It was a music where people went to dance. You know, it, it wasn't just something to observe. It wasn't something to just watch. You know, you participated in it. You danced. You 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 were a part of it. You know, it was in the airwaves. Not so much now, but it doesn't mean or diminish the value of the genre in itself. So. Back to that live studio recording I told you about a few minutes ago. When I got the guys in a room together, between takes, they started chatting about their individual histories with jazz. Now, I should note that all three are extremely accomplished jazz musicians. Larnell has won a Grammy. Mike won a 2018 Juno Award for Best Solo Album of the Year. Jeremy has taken his piano skills all over the world, and in 2018, was awarded World Music Producer of the Year at the Independent Music Awards. But when I asked all three of them about their careers, they all admitted that their musical histories did not start with the influence of jazz. They grew up learning and loving different types of music, classical, gospel, rock, before they fell into it. To your recollection, like the first time you heard like a jazz album or like jazz, in general, that you you kind of stepped away and said, "Oh my gosh, that's jazz." Identified. I'll tell you mine. Um, it was always around, but uh, definitely was this Christmas album, um, Ella Fitzgerald. Oh wow! That was nice. the first one for me. Nice. Mine was Night Train for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, a, and I don't remember how old I was when I came across it. Okay. But I think I remember when I was. Um, when I was like 15 or something, I quit playing classical music. And then I got somehow, for some reason, I can't remember how it happened, but I got really like obsessively into the blues. What's obsessive? Like we're like, talking about. Oh, it was like all I would listen to. I was like scouring, like doing, re I mean, there was no internet back then. So mm -hmm. I was doing like research to like find guys who nobody knows about, who history has forgotten, right. like find recordings and you know, like it was, I was really, really into it so i would go to hmv and they had a little blues section okay and i would buy all the cassettes that i didn't already own <laughs> the blues section yeah and i think night train had been accidentally filed oh, in the wow. blues section. oh that's funny i would have been like 15 or 16. i my mine is kind of a funny story because my my dad played bass but I was like, I was way more into like rock music and stuff when I was a kid. So I was like, uh, you know, learning.
learning these like rush tunes and all that and my dad got really sick of hearing me doing that uh when i was a kid and so i was upstairs in my room practicing and he brought me downstairs we had a really nice stereo system and he played me milestones he played me paul chambers basically like taking some bode solos and like uh walking you know the tune milestones and all that and and uh um, got me to play along with the recordings which I had like not a clue what I was doing. I mean, I heard it around the house all the time because my dad was a huge jazz fan, but it was my first foray into playing jazz. But it was it was a really interesting way in because you're playing along with these tunes where, you know, like it's one thing to play along with the Beatles where you can really hear the chord progressions. Yeah. But in, in a jazz setting, you know, it's yeah, like nothing it's ever different. sounds the same, no, right? Like yeah. I remember that feeling of going, "What is going What's on?" Going you know, it's on? hard That's to even pretty... hear the tonality, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so so it was a very interesting sort of uh, trial by fire. You no know, just kidding. just play along with recordings. Just like Mike and Jeremy, once Larnell fell in love with jazz, he fell hard, and turned drumming into a full-time thing. Eventually, in 2013. He was invited to join a collective called Snarky Puppy, a large, fluid group of players across the world that takes turns performing in various places depending on who can be there that day. Their members have performed with talents like Snoop Dogg, David Crosby, and Justin Timberlake, and invited Larnell under tight circumstances. Larnell was in Canada. The performance was in Europe and he had less than 24 hours to practice. So what happens when you put a jazz drummer on a red-eye flight with some sheet music and no time to sit down and practice? More on that in a moment. Performance comes in many flavors on the road. There's the amped up, overtuned kind, and in the new Lincoln Aviator, there's the kind that just leaves you feeling better overall, more relaxed, more uplifted, more alive. That's the kind of performance Lincoln's all about. Discover it today in the all-new 2020 Lincoln Aviator. Where we left off, Larnell is boarding a plane to Europe to play with Snarky Puppy on very short notice. It was an extremely tight deadline that, in any other profession, might have seemed impossible. But improv musicians like Larnell often have to learn to play music on the fly, and he was determined to make it work. The drummer, Robert Sput Seawright, needed a sub, so I got a chance to play drums with the band. I had to learn maybe about 21 songs in five days with no charts. Fast forward, I think it was maybe about another year later, because I had become comfortable with them, they had booked me on a tour. So it was my first tour that I was doing with them. Just a couple weeks before I was scheduled to be on the tour, I got a call, and the call was, Larnell, can you fly out to Europe right now? I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, we got to do this recording session, and unfortunately, our drummer cannot get out of the U.S. Can you get here? I'm like, I can get there by Sunday. Why? Because I was doing a live recording with the Toronto Mass Choir, their 25th anniversary, and or maybe 20th, maybe 25th, I'll say 25th. And so camera set up, massive, huge choir, been rehearsing for a month. I can't leave them in the dust. So I was like, yeah, I'll leave on Sunday. They're like, great, we start recording Monday. So if I fly Sunday night, I land Monday morning. 
they got me the music late. And of course, it's a two-day notice. I'm doing the live recording, so then I have to learn the music on the flight. Learn the music on the flight. We get into Europe. We do a four-hour rehearsal. There's a string quartet plus the full band. We do the first two sets performing in front of a live audience. And at the end of that, Mike League looks at me and says, you're in the band. Like, you don't have a choice. And it was funny because a lot of people had only heard about this kid from Toronto, but they weren't sure who I was, you know? They might have seen some clips online, but in terms of how I fit into the band, it wasn't something they had seen. So it was nice to get that opportunity. And I guess it was a cool way to make the cut. <laughs> Today, Larnell refers to Snarky Puppy as a family, a community that's very special to him, that he says he's lucky to be a part of. But the nature of a collective that's fluid like Snarky Puppy is that it is ever-changing. He's almost never playing with the same exact lineup of musicians from performance to performance. So every time he plays, he has to rely on his improv instincts, that indiscernible language of musical cues performers use to communicate with each other. Whoops, sorry. Actually, that's beautiful, man. Oh, yeah? Okay, if, if but you, I played the wrong... No, it's what I was, no, I was about to say. It was like, if you... You know what? Just do whatever. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, not going to say anything, because I'm digging everything you do. I don't right, want to dictate it too go. much. Just go, go, go. That's the beauty of improv jazz. You don't hear any hesitation or stumbling. To the average ear, it sounds effortless. To sound like you know exactly what's about to come, when you really have no idea at all, it's a complex thing to understand. The performers communicate with each other through musical signals, pauses, repetition, tempo changes, and other cues. They take turns doing solos, and when one player is tired of taking center stage, they'll slow down their music, making it quieter, letting the other players know that they can feel free to get louder to take their place. And when another player is doing a killer solo, they'll use a beat or a melody that complements the solo well without overshadowing it. That's called supporting. They'll give each other nods or make eye contact to communicate their next move. You can see what's happening, but you can't quite tell what each one is communicating to the other. It's like a secret language. When all of that is going on behind the scenes, what the listener hears is this. Even a pre-written tune, like Beignets, the song we're about to play for you off Larnell's latest album, can take on a life of its own. So this song is called Beignets, and it's about my experience in New Orleans. And I thought it was fitting to put into this context because New Orleans is actually known as the cradle, the home of jazz. We got here Mike Downs on bass, and we have Jeremy Ledbetter on piano. And this song is called Beignets.
As Larnell mentioned, the song performed was from his solo album, released in 2018, called In The Moment. I doubt you'd be able to tell that it was Jeremy and Mike's first time playing it with him. As if by magic, their performance sounded like they'd known each other for years. They all had to rely on nonverbal cues to communicate as they were playing. Let's hear them dissect it. There are a lot of things that happened in the song. And uh, one that I found was really cool was how Jeremy and Mike, how you guys, you cued really well into and out of not only sections, but into the type of energy that you needed at that moment. Jeremy, you would play maybe longer notes, maybe uh, more staccato notes or specific rhythms. And that indicated to me, okay, I should maybe play a little less busy because it felt like you were about to, you know, let's say you're playing longer notes, making your your sound wider, but then you're also bringing your dynamic level down. Mm -hmm. So that was helpful to me to know, okay, I got to accompany what you're doing with maybe less notes or less cymbal or less snare drum or you know make my rhythms less complicated yeah it's an interesting sort of concept because we're cueing each other with our with eye contact yes and with our body language because we can all see each other but then there are also all kinds of uh, sort of another level of communication between jazz musicians is the sort of idea of musical signals that we give each other there are certain um, almost codified things that you know, there are things that I'll do on the piano that send a signal to you guys that I'm preparing to wrap up my solo, perhaps. It's time to bring it down. And there are things that you do that show us that the next section is coming. And I'll go from something like... You know, to something more like... That sort of yeah. sounds like I'm winding down or I'm mm -hmm. bringing the energy down. Another thing you did, Jeremy, was like just going down in the range on the piano. In fact, so much yeah. so that I, I have a low D and I had to uh, actually undo uh, my stop here. I was like, I got to use my low D. I got to get down there, get get down out there. there right? Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, it seemed like the right thing yeah. to do. The way you ended your solo made me start my solo down here. Like, yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't normally have done that. You kind of fed it to me right down there, so it just seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah, you know, like, it was a really cool yeah. thing that you did to start the solo like that, and it felt so that which made me feel like the right thing for me to do was to play very sparsely and leave you all kinds of space and just sort of... We yeah. created this cool energy that sort of just came from the idea of... It's like improvising... Uh, Actors, you know, to work with the same sort of idea, like somebody says something or states an idea and then everyone else carries along or it's more like a, right. or like a relay runner passing a baton. I've heard a couple of times that one of the rules in improv mm -hmm. is that you have to agree. Like when someone sets something up, you, you got to kind of figure out how you're going to. With that, well, yeah, you, that you don't say no. The, like sorry, you that can, you don't yeah. say no. There yeah, we go. yeah. Yes. You can disagree, but like if someone says, I think we should go into this shop, you know, you don't say, no, that's, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, right. <laughs> you can say, like, you can sort of say, I don't want to go into that shop because the last time I went in there, this, you know, like you can you start, play you, into but it. you're still, you're still using that idea of right. going into the shop and moving positively forward with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly, and we do the same thing. In between these moments of exchange, each musician is also having an individual experience, 
feeling the music in their own separate way. As collaborative as the experience of improv is, Larnell, Mike, and Jeremy all feel it differently and bring unique approaches to the table. So obviously, you know, we're experienced musicians. We, we play quite often. So, you know, our thought process is really advanced. What would you say? Speak for yourself, by the way. <laughs> I will. So I'm going to talk about what goes through my mind. Because um, right. I think I'm, I'm curious about what's going through your mind as an improviser, both Ooh. of you. What does it feel like to be in the moment, to be improvising and, and catching that wave? It's, a, it's kind of a feeling of patience. I'm not kind of forcing anything and I'm, and I'm listening. And uh, I know that when I'm improvising, I'm definitely, definitely singing, mm -hmm. like I'm singing in my head and then I just mm -hmm. play what I sing. But as an accompanist, I'm also just kind of listening and I'm hearing my bass line as sort of a secondary melody to support the other things that I'm hearing. It's the sum of basically, and probably for all of us, like everything that I've listened to and actually many things I've experienced in my life, like, you know, walking through the woods is part of what comes out mm -hmm. in a context like this, because that's, an, that's a life experience that is meaningful. You just leave yourself open to express those things and let them channel through. So a lot of what I've done mentally to prepare for this is getting out of the way of myself. I, I feel a similar thing. I, I think if I were to sum up what happens to me when I'm playing. I mean, obviously my instrument being the drums is a very physical side of mm -hmm. like how I move my arms around and my legs, but I have these senses that go off, you know? And then there's a lot of imagery as well that's happening at the same time. You talked about a forest, like I might see a forest. So mm -hmm. I start playing things that, that represent the leaves that I see, mm -hmm. or I feel like this wind behind me. And so I start to create that kind of sonic impression of what wind feels like passing by your ears. That's so interesting, man, because when I'm composing, and we've talked about this before, when I'm composing, I am super visual. Like, yes. like I see images and and a lot of the sound is related to those images. But when I'm, when I'm playing, I don't really, I, yeah. I don't really see those images in the same way as when I'm composing. Yeah. Like it's an impetus for, for composition. It's weird, huh? Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I don't really like, you know, I might see something, but not to that, not to that level. That's yeah. interesting. Larnell was kind enough to play us an unreleased song of his own creation, one that he decided to name Slice of Life. As my team and I sat in the studio listening, we weren't the only ones hearing the song for the very first time. Mike and Jeremy had also never heard it before. They learned as they went.
Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. That infectious melody we just heard works live just as well as it does prearranged. And it works for a reason. Uh, such a be- it's a beautiful tune, and it's a beautiful example, too, for this kind of thing, because what makes jazz writing good is, is that it's t- care has been taken to create something that isn't necessarily tethered to any specific arrangement or any specific instrumentation or way of playing. It needs to be something that's sort of almost like not fully formed in a way, Mm. that lends itself to being fully formed by the musicians who are playing it in the moment that they're playing it. And Beignets is a good example of that. And this is a this melody is a perfect example of it too. If it's too if it's something that only sounds good a certain way, then there isn't enough room or freedom for the musicians to be able to interact and and express our own ideas. You should be able to play the melody on any instrument. It shouldn't be instrument specific. Uh Uh, The chord progression should stand on its own, which Uh this tune does. Mm -hmm. And we should be able to play this in any kind of feel and it would still work, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm pretty sure we could play this in three. You know? But, but I mean, the, the idea yeah. is that the tune works regardless of what you do with it. So if you have a strong harmonic progression, you got a strong melody, you're good to go, good to you know? <laughs> that unspoken language we were talking about before, that language of eye contact, of musical cues and transitions. As audience members, you're not really supposed to see it, but sometimes, when players are so in sync, their communication so strong, this invisible language becomes tangible, a feeling in the air. Moments that happen between the notes, in the pauses and pickups. Moments that you can feel. Maybe you can hear them too, or maybe you can't. Moments that sound simple, but which are detailed and complex guided as much by a sense of trust in the unpredictable as by a sense of faith in one's fellow musicians, the sound of meeting someone where they are. Maybe that's the sound of jazz.
Special thanks to our guests, Larnell Lewis, Mike Downs, and Jeremy Ledbetter. Show producers Monica Bialabreski, Carl Solis, and Audrey Carlton. Our sound designer, Alex Glutch, and audio engineer, Kira Corbett. I'm Carly Lewis, and this has been The Sound Of. Beautiful. I like that big smile. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> oh my gosh. Nice. Thanks for listening.